Hello and welcome to Hampshire Hist Bites. Join us as we delve into the past and go on a journey to discover some of the county's best and occasionally unknown history. We'll be speaking to experts and enthusiasts and asking them to reveal some of our hidden heritage, as well as share with you a few fascinating untold tales. Johanna Strong is a PhD student at the University of Winchester, researching the creation of Mary I's legacy. In today's episode, Johanna asks us to question the representation of historical narrative and memory of one of England's female monarchs. The Queen is dead. Long live the Queen. This phrase has been announced only once in English history. While most of us are probably quick to figure out to whom the second half of that phrase refers, more than a few are probably struggling right now to call to mind the other Queen. By now, you've probably guessed that Long Live the Queen refers to Elizabeth I. But who is the dead Queen? Would it help if I gave you a hint? She's often called by the erroneous nickname she shares with an alcoholic drink. If the name Mary has sprung to mind, you are correct. England's first crowned Queen Regnant, that is, a queen in her own right, was Mary I, the only surviving child of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Born in February 1516, Mary was educated as befitted a royal daughter. She was taught everything and then so. She'd need to know to be a good queen consort to whomever her parents decided was a suitable and advantageous match. As her parents' marriage was annulled and Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn, Mary faced great uncertainty about her future. With the birth of her brother, the future Edward VI, in 1537, it seemed as if Mary was destined to be a queen consort of a foreign husband, set to live out the rest of her days outside of England. Edward VI, though, was king for only six years before he died. Without going into detail, which could fill an entire set of podcast episodes, Edward left his throne to Lady Jane Grey, a Protestant cousin, instead of to Mary. Mary quickly rallied her troops and challenged Jane's seat on the throne with Mary ultimately being declared queen shortly thereafter. By the end of July 1553, Mary had secured her rightful place on the English throne, and so the reign of England's first crowned queen regnant began. So far, this sounds very much like an underdog story. The princess turned pauper, finally gets her throne, marries her prince, and lives happily ever after. Unfortunately for Mary, that isn't quite how it worked out. The two places where Mary celebrated the happiest days of her life and was herself memorialized at her death have practically no memory of her. While Mary was crowned and buried in Westminster Abbey, she has only one line of an epitaph dedicated to her memory on the tomb she shares with her sister and successor, Elizabeth I. Closer to home for many listeners, Winchester Cathedral hosted Mary's marriage to Philip II of Spain on the 25th of July, 1554. At the cathedral, though, no definitive remnants of her marriage exist. What happened that Mary was effectively erased from these two great churches? It's my aim to find out. 
My PhD thesis focuses on the way which Mary has been presented in the English and British historical narrative, from the time of her immediate successor Elizabeth I to the rise of the Hanoverian era. At the center of my research are three main aims, anti-Catholicism, anti-foreignness, and gender, all of which play an essential role in the physical memory of Mary and her reign. You can imagine how much there is to say about 300 years of narrative creation. So today I'll be sticking to Elizabethan and early Jacobian representations and remembrances of Mary. Because context is so key to historical analysis, I think it's important we go over a few of the main theoretical points, which will help us to delve further into Mary's posthumous legacy. Firstly, it's essential that we have a good grasp of how memory is created, why, and how it's held on to. Historian Pierre Nora and psychologist Frederick Bartlett both agree that memory is a way of defining and giving meaning to the present. Individual moments are collected into a series of memories. From this collection of memories comes the historical narrative, a semi-agreed-upon story which we've decided is representative of our past. The historical narrative is, therefore, by necessity, a group effort. People with similar memories and similar perspectives naturally form groups distinct from other people with other memories and other perspectives. All members of any given group thus internalize the same interpretation of their memories. They have, in a way, created their own group narrative. If a person doesn't agree with it, then that person can't be part of the group. As a result, group identities often become what's been called a zero-sum struggle, where only one group's narrative can be correct and the rest must definitively be proven wrong. As one group's narrative triumphs over others, anything that does not fit the dominant narrative is rejected. It is this desire to fit an established narrative that has forced Mary into a place of, of obscurity in the Elizabethan historical memory, as we can see at both Winchester Cathedral and Westminster Abbey. Mary's marriage to Philip II of Spain on that July day in 1554 still lingers in Winchester's collective memory. The Chronicle of Queen Jane tells of the number of Spaniards who arrived in England with Philip, with as many as four Spaniards for every one English person, with one of the estimates reaching 12,000 Spaniards coming into England. One of the highlights would surely have been the 97 chests, which held about a thousand pounds in silver not to mention the expensive wedding clothes complete with priceless gems worn by both the bride and the groom, the amount of cloth of gold worn as clothing and put up as decoration, and not to mention the costly gold and silver plate used by Mary and Philip respectively at their post-wedding meal. But this isn't the focus of Winchester's tie to Mary's marriage. Some of you may have been lucky enough to see what's been called Mary's chair. Now languishing out of the public eye, this chair was reportedly the one on which Mary sat at her wedding celebrations. Reportedly being the key word there. We have no proof from sources 
but this exact chair is the one that Mary used. It's the right time period. It's the right style. It's the right taste. But we have nothing that definitively links Mary to this chair. And trust me, I do wish we had those sources. Nevertheless, this chair takes center stage in Winchester Cathedral's tangible evocations of Mary. It has come to take the place of any physical, definitive Marian objects and provides a tangible aspect to Winchester's memory of Mary. Lectures, tours, and even special exhibitions continue to highlight Mary's association with the cathedral. Cathedral guides point out the banner hooks in the nave, which were, again reportedly, installed for Mary's wedding decorations. Lectures recall the significance of Winchester to the monarchy, even past its time as the nation's capital. A special exhibition and worship services were installed and conducted to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Mary and Philip's wedding. We have the sources that detail the general wedding decor and appearance. We have the sources that describe the marriage negotiations and the marriage contract in detail. But what we don't have is a detailed enough eyewitness account of every detail of every decoration and every piece of furniture used at their wedding, which we could use to positively identify any of these items in a collection. Until we have that source, historians cannot say with absolute certainty that the cathedral items purported to belong to and to have been used by Mary actually were. That's especially true for furniture, such as Mary's chair, which doesn't have the already established history of, say, the coronation chair. There was no significance to the chair on which Mary sat for her wedding celebrations, so detailed descriptions of it went unwritten or have been lost to history. While what is perhaps the happiest day of Mary's life is still remembered in detail at the cathedral and is still frequently called upon as a sign of Winchester's special importance to the monarchy, none of the cathedral's Marian items are definitively Mary's. Part of this obscurity is simply due to the type of item. Without the aura of history that surrounds a special chair, such as the coronation chair at Westminster Abbey, there really is no reason to make a special note of a chair used for a few hours by a monarch. At the time, that just wasn't as important as who was sitting where, next to whom, and on what sort of plate they were served. What captures our imaginations these days, though, is that there is so little we have that links us to Mary. We want to believe that we have something that Mary touched and used. Recently, historians have identified the Bacton altar cloth as very likely being a portion of one of Elizabeth I's dresses. We don't have any similar item for Mary. What we have left of her is written sources about her reign. Nothing more material than that. This is likely due to the same reasons that Mary's tomb is essentially still unmarked 500 years later. It wasn't in Elizabeth's interests to dwell on her sister's life and reign. More on that in a second. Anything associated with Mary was hastily put aside at Elizabeth's succession. Mary became a symbol of foreign influence and Catholicism 
two things which Elizabeth strove to shun throughout her reign. All memory of Mary was thus remembered in a negative light, was erased, or was simply neglected. Mary was perhaps remembered personally and quietly by those who were still loyal to the Catholic faith, but she was certainly forgotten or cast aside by the general English population in the 16th century. The memory held of Mary by Winchester Cathedral is what historians call teleological, important only because we know, thanks to hindsight, that Mary's reign was a unique period in English history. Her chair at the cathedral is thus transformed into an item of unique historical importance, but only in hindsight. Westminster Abbey has what can be seen as the opposite problem. While it holds Mary and her tomb, and so has these material remembrances, she is nonetheless forgotten, and to an extent written out of the historical narrative. As soon as Mary died, Elizabeth made sure to use the ensuing funeral and burial to promote her own intentions for the religion of England. Mary's funeral and burial at the Abbey was a site of conflict between Elizabeth I's regime and what's been called the Catholic ascendancy of Mary. Elizabeth used Mary's funeral as an opportunity to promote her own intentions for the religion of the realm. John White, Bishop of Winchester's funeral sermon, didn't help to ease this conflict. He chose to preach on Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4, which speaks of a living dog being better than a dead lion, with Elizabeth as the living dog and Mary as the dead lion. He preached on the dangers of Protestantism and the judgment from God inherent with having, without thought of repentance or returning to it, as one source puts it, willfully departed out of the Catholic Church. He cautioned that there were, as he put it, wolves coming from Geneva and German cities, a threat from which the live dogs, White's metaphor for preachers and ecclesiastical leaders, had to defend England by barking against sin, blasphemy, and heresy. White was deprived of his bishopric and was imprisoned, partly as a result of this sermon and partly because he refused to conform to Elizabeth's church. Despite spending approximately £7,000 on the funeral proceedings, Elizabeth was more than hesitant to remember her sister and predecessor. Mary had been quite clear in her will how she wished to be eternally memorialized. Her will states that she wanted her body to be buried at the discretion of her executors, though she requested that the burial happen with the appropriate prayers and ceremonies as was due to Mary as a queen regnant of England, and as her executors saw fit. A larger tomb was immediately unnecessary, but Mary's final wishes were that she and her mother would be buried together, either at Windsor or at Westminster Abbey, with the Abbey ultimately being chosen. When the time came for a tomb to be constructed, Mary left clear instructions that honorable tombs or monuments should be made for both Mary and Catherine of Aragon. 
Despite the clarity of these requests, Elizabeth ignored her predecessor's wishes. Mary's resting place sat unmarked in the Henry VII Chapel. When the Abbey's altars were dismantled in 1561, the broken altar stones were left on Mary's unmarked grave. Meanwhile, Elizabeth was planning memorials for her father, Henry VIII, and her brother, Edward VI. The only crowned Tudor monarch missing was Mary. Elizabeth likely thought it was in her best interests to strengthen her own reign by minimizing the memory of her Catholic sister and predecessor. What also stirred this proverbial memorial pot was the fact that Elizabeth was, at this point, still technically illegitimate and still technically barred from the succession, according to the 1531 Second Succession Act. Even though her inheritance had been restored in 1543 by Henry VIII's will, this had been done only out of respect to Elizabeth's lineage and not out of a legal obligation. Elizabeth still had a shaky hold on the throne, so it was in her best interests to avoid anything which drew attention to herself as Henry VIII's second child. When Elizabeth I died in 1603, James VI of Scotland inherited the English throne, making him James I of England. He ordered an extensive tomb be built for Elizabeth I in the same location as Mary's. Believing that his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was the only heir to Henry VII, it's natural that James wanted to discredit his predecessors, Mary and Elizabeth but he still had to pay respect to Elizabeth, who had left him the English throne. Since James was not English and was not an heir of Elizabeth's body, he had to secure his position as her natural successor. In order to do so, James ordered in 1606 the removal of Elizabeth from her original grave in the Henry VII Chapel and commissioned a new grave for her in the North Isle alongside Mary. By giving them a shared tomb, James paired Elizabeth, in one historian's words, with her childless, unpopular, and Catholic sister, ultimately casting aside both queens regnant. By building a glorious monument to Elizabeth, James attempted to harness for himself the loyalty the English people had for Elizabeth. Any glory associated with her tomb would be reflected in turn onto James himself. It was also, though, a subtle way for James to remind his new English subjects that Elizabeth and Mary were more similar in one aspect than either sister wanted to admit. They had both died childless, failing to provide England with an heir of their blood. James' pairing of Elizabeth and Mary in the North Isle highlighted their eternal physical separation from the line of women buried across the aisle in the Henry VII Chapel. Women who had birthed monarchs and consorts. Women such as Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry VII, and Margaret the Countess of Lennox, mother of Henry Lord Darnley, James' father. 
If the size of funerary monuments is a testament to an individual's power over national memory, then Mary's exclusion of her own tomb is telling. She's remembered in only one line of the engraving on the tomb. Here we rest, Elizabeth and Mary. And Mary doesn't appear visually anywhere. It's only Elizabeth who appears in effigy. At Winchester Cathedral, Mary is conceptually remembered without tangible remnants. At Westminster Abbey, tangible remnants of Mary exist without her being conceptually remembered. In both places, Mary is a victim of Elizabethan propaganda. A queen regnant married to a foreigner at Winchester Cathedral, better forgotten in an Elizabethan England, which feared continental power and Philip's influence. A Catholic better forgotten in a newly Protestantized state, buried literally and figuratively at Westminster Abbey under the weight of Protestant England. At Westminster Abbey, Mary is written out of the visual narrative because, in hindsight, she is overshadowed by her sister. This perspective of hindsight is also what gives importance to Mary's chair at Winchester Cathedral, an importance never recognized in Mary's own life. As we can see at both significant locations for her reign, Mary's life and legacy is much more complicated than suggested by the simple phrase, the queen is dead. Long live the queen. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about what we've been talking about, then please visit the website, winchesterheritageopendays.org. Click on Hampshire Histbites, and there you'll find today's show notes, as well as some links to more information. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.